In recent weeks, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we've noticed Paul's aim in this letter is to teach the Colossians and to teach us about true spirituality. The Colossians were in danger of being confused about it, and so are we. We live at a time when many people would describe themselves as spiritual. But when it comes to exactly what they mean by that, there is an incredible variety of answers. That was the same in Colossae as well. And Paul writes this letter to bring clarity into the confusion. And in the part of the letter we're going to look at this morning, Paul is going to answer the question, how important is Jesus really? Now, Paul is writing to men and women who know that Jesus is important. They're followers of Jesus. But these people live in a world ruled by Caesar. The power of the Roman Empire is obvious and inescapable. The Colossians also knew, probably better than we know today, they knew that human powers were not the whole story. They knew there were other invisible powers at work. And so, faced with a long list of powers, it's not surprising the Colossians would be wondering, how important is Jesus really? Where does Jesus rank among these seen and unseen powers in the world? And today, the question is just as important. Because while many spiritual people will give some acknowledgement to Jesus, there's a whole lot of confusion about his actual position. Is he one good man among many others? Is he one prophet or teacher or wise man among many others? Since the Beatles got interested in spirituality a few decades ago, there has been a long line of well-known gurus claiming to have some sort of key to life. Oprah Winfrey might be the most successful of the lot. Millions of people look to Oprah for spiritual guidance. They have done for many years. But spiritual gurus existed long before Oprah, long before the Beatles got interested in them. So the question is, where does Jesus fit into the picture? How important is Jesus really? We're going to read the answer in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. If you haven't turned there yet, it's in the church Bibles, <clears throat> in page 1182, or in the larger print Bibles, 1827. And the context here is that Paul has just been speaking in the previous verses about God's work to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. And then having mentioned the Son, Paul says in verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is God's Word. And the key to understanding this is the two passages we read earlier from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 presents the creation of the man and woman as being the pinnacle of creation. Only human beings are described as being created in God's image. But what exactly does that mean, in God's image? It means they were to show the world what God is like. God is invisible. Human beings were to show His character through their lives in the world. Their lives were to make God visible. How would they do that? They would do it by ruling God's world well, in a godly way, showing His character through the character of their rule. In the ancient world, when a king ruled over a large kingdom, he couldn't be physically present in every part of his kingdom. So he would put up an image of himself in various places throughout the kingdom. That was not just for fun, it was to show who was king. Now God is present everywhere, but that ancient practice helps us get to grips with what Genesis is saying. Human beings were put on earth as God's image to show His kingship through their godly rule of the earth. And if we pause at this point and consider what that means, it means human beings have an incredibly honored position. Being in the image of God didn't just apply to Adam and Eve, the first human beings, it is an honor given to all humanity. And it's an honor that fuels a lot of spirituality today. I mentioned Oprah Winfrey earlier. Oprah doesn't need convincing that human beings are godly or godlike. Oprah has said, I believe in the God force that lives inside all of us. And once you tap into that, you can do anything. A lot of spirituality today is based on that kind of idea. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned something that's very popular at the moment. The idea of manifesting your future. It's about getting what you desire. Whether that is love or money or any number of other things. How do you get those things you desire? You signal the universe to bring your desires into reality. Can you see what a high place that gives us as human beings? We can signal the universe, we're told, 
to serve us, to deliver the job we want, the cash we want, or the romantic partner we want. What's going on with those ideas? Well, they have taken a truth of Scripture, the truth that as human beings, we do have a wonderfully honored position made in God's image. A lot of spirituality takes that biblical truth and shakes it loose from the other truth, which is tied to in Scripture, the truth that we are not God. We are made in His image, but we are not Him. He is Lord of the universe, not us. My role and your role is not to signal the universe to bring our desires into reality. Our role is to live as faithful servants as the one who does rule the universe. Faithful servants of the one who rules. Now with that in mind, look again how Jesus, the Son of God, is described in our passage in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. We're back with the language of Genesis chapter 1. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who reveals God. That's what Genesis 1 told us about human beings. So then, are we being told Jesus is just like us, and we are just like him? Not quite. Verse 15 goes on to say, the Son is the firstborn over all creation. Now, if we stop there, we might think the Son was the first to be created by God. Firstborn. But when we read on, we realize that is not what is being said. Verse 16 says, For in him all things were created. Clearly, the Son is not a part of creation. If he cooperated with the Father in the work of creation, then he's not part of creation. So, what does Paul mean when he calls Jesus the firstborn? If it's not a reference to the Son of God being created, what is it about? Well, in the ancient world, the title of firstborn was about position. It was about status. The firstborn had a special place. The first place. The firstborn had the supremacy. When it came to ownership and rule and honor, he was first. In the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau were two brothers who fought for the status of firstborn. Now, Esau was actually born first, but Jacob ended up with the status of firstborn. The same thing happened a bit further on with Joseph's sons. Manasseh was born first, but the status of firstborn went to his brother Ephraim. And here, too, Giving the Son of God the title of firstborn is not telling us he had a beginning. It is making a statement about his status. And his status could not be greater. He is the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus the Son is not just another Adam. What was true in a certain sense of Adam 
is true in a supreme sense of Jesus. Adam was made in God's image, but there were big, big limitations to how fully Adam could reveal and display God. There are no limitations to Jesus' revelation of God. He is the perfect revealer of God. In Jesus the Son, the character and power of the Father are fully seen. And if we ask why that is, it's because Adam and the whole human race were not creators. Not truly. Now, there are many ways that human beings are creative. In the early chapters of Genesis, we hear about human beings being creative with music, being creative with tools, with farming. We are creative. Human art and technology confirms we are made in the image of God, the Creator. But the bottom line is, we can only get creative with what God has given us. Our creativity relies on the atoms and molecules God created first. Our creativity is an imperfect revelation of God's creativity because he came up with his own atoms and molecules. But look how Jesus the Son is the perfect revealer of God in verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. At this point, we human beings and our creativity have been left far, far behind. We cannot compete with Jesus, the image of God. In verse 16, things visible and invisible includes all physical things and all spiritual things. Nothing is left out. All things have been created through him and for him. And so you and I might buy into the idea that we can manifest our future. We might decide that we can signal the universe to make our desires happen. We might buy into that, but sooner or later we have to wake up to reality and admit the universe doesn't operate at the click of my fingers or yours. I can try all the manifestation techniques that Oprah gives me, but they ain't going to work. The universe does not follow my signals. It does, however, follow the signals of Jesus the Son. He is the perfect image of God because he is the creator and ruler of all. Verse 17 adds the detail that he's also the sustainer of all. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus the Son was there before creation, and minute by minute, if it wasn't for his sustaining work, the universe would disintegrate. Every time I brush my hair, I'm reminded 
I can't successfully hold even one of my hairs together with my scalp. When a hair decides to part company with me, I can't stop it. I could get a hair transplant eventually, I suppose, but I would soon lose, lose those hairs as well. I can't hold things together in that most minor thing. And I most certainly can't hold any of the major things together. But what is not true of you and me at all is true supremely of Jesus the Son. In Him, all things hold together. We started with the question, how important is Jesus really? Now we have an answer. Jesus, the Son of God, is Lord of all creation. Such a simple thing for you and me to say, but such a life-changing truth for us to come to terms with. Do you want the best future? Then stop living like you're God of the universe. Stop trying to bend the universe to do your will. You and I can't control the number of hairs in our head. We can't control the people and situations that impact our lives every day. And if we try to control those things, the effort will break us in the end. We didn't create the universe and we cannot hold it together. Despite our best efforts, time always proves we cannot hold our looks together, we cannot hold our health together, we cannot hold our careers or our finances together, we cannot even hold our dearest relationships together. There's no signal I can send to the universe that ensures my loved ones are always going to be healthy and always going to be strong. There's no signal I can send to make sure they are always with me. And that doesn't mean our daily decisions are meaningless. Of course not. You and I can do things that are better or worse. We can do things that are wiser or more foolish. But in the end, we can hold nothing together. And so the very wisest thing we can do is to humble ourselves and worship the one who is God of the universe. Maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. Maybe you've been breathing in without even realizing it. Maybe you've been breathing in some of the spirituality that says you can do anything you put your mind to. You can build your perfect future. That's a lie. And it's not a harmless lie. It's a lie that will break you if you try to live by it. The Bible tells you to let it go. Put your trust again in the one who holds the universe in his hands.
the one who also holds your future in his hands. This passage has more to tell us. It tells us Jesus, the Son of God, is also Lord of the new creation. The background to these verses, 18 to 20, is the second passage that we read earlier from Genesis chapter 3. The first man and woman made in the image of God fell into the trap we've just been talking about. The trap of believing they were God. That they could bend the universe to their will. Genesis chapter 3 tells us, living by that lie broke them. And it has been breaking humanity ever since. Because there's no place in God's presence for human beings who think they're God. So Genesis tells us the man and woman were banished from God's presence. And outside of God's presence, things do not go well. By creating them in his image, God had given human beings an incredibly honored and blessed position. But when they reached for more, when they grasped after the ultimate position, they fell. They fell far and they fell hard. They fell back to the dust God had made them from in the first place. Death became the ultimate reminder that we are not God. Death became the ultimate frustration to all our attempts to bend the universe to our will. Human history is full of ambitious people who wanted to rule the world. Alexander the Great, Hitler, and a lot of other people we've never heard of. History is full of creative people who wanted to transform the world. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, said that he wanted to leave a ding in the universe. He wanted to leave his mark for all time. But the problem for ambitious people and creative people is death frustrates our ambitions and our creativity. We can aim as high as we like. We are all returning to the dust. That's been the reality for us since Genesis chapter 3. Death is the ultimate reminder we are not God. And that's the background to what we read in the second half of our passage here in Colossians. Look at verse 18. Jesus the Son is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The key phrase there is that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. We had in verses 15 to 17, we heard that he is Lord of all creation. He is over all creation. But now we learn he did not stand aloof from creation. He came and joined us down here in the dust. He was born as a baby, a true human being, and he died with us here in the dust. 
He surrendered to an unjust death on a cross. He was laid lifeless in a tomb. Apparently, to return to dust like the rest of us. But that is not what happened. He rose from the dust to new eternal life. Those are the central truths of Christianity. And here we're being told the significance of those truths. The resurrection of Jesus the Son was not just an awesome miracle, it was the beginning of a new creation. It began the restoration of all that humanity lost through trying to be God ourselves. Jesus' resurrection from the dust means we are not forever condemned to the dust. In verse 15, the Son was described as firstborn over all creation. Here in verse 18, he is firstborn from among the dead. Firstborn doesn't just mean he came first. Again, as we saw earlier, this is about status. The Son rules the new creation that began with his resurrection. And that explains the beginning of verse 18, which mentions the church. In the New Testament, the church is not a building made out of bricks. The church is a building made of living stones. It's made of men, women, and children. People whose lives have been made new by Jesus. That is the church, and we're being told here, the church is the beachhead of the new creation. The church is where the new creation can be seen today. Amidst all the brokenness in the world, the new creation breaks through in the church. It is displayed in the church. It's displayed in changed lives and changed attitudes and changed relationships. The church is made up of those who belong to Jesus, those who put their faith in his death for them. And verse 18 says, Jesus the Son is the head of the body, the church. The New Testament often refers to the church as a body, meaning it's made up of many different members, all of them important, all of them with a part to play, just like in a human body. That's a wonderful truth. But here, by pointing to Jesus as the head... What we're being shown is, just as we need to know we can't bend the universe to our will, we're not Lord of all creation, so here we need to know we cannot bend the church to our will either. We're not Lord of the new creation. You and I are privileged to belong to the church, we're privileged to have a part to play in the church. But you and I do not rule the church. Whether we're church members or church leaders, the church is not ours to bend and try to mold to our will. We don't get to decide the message of the church. We don't get to decide the priorities of the church. Jesus the Son decides. 
He is head of the church. He is Lord of the new creation. And notice how comprehensive the end of verse 18 is. All this is so that in everything, Jesus the Son might have the supremacy. Both in creation, which we heard about in verses 15 to 17, and in the new creation, which these verses are about. Jesus is Lord of it all. He is head of it all. He has supremacy over it all. There are no departments in the universe where authority is parceled out between different lords. And there are no departments in the church where we are lords over some of it and Jesus gets to set the agenda for the rest of it. No, he has the supremacy in everything. So our attitude to church decisions must not be, how can I get what I want? Our attitude must be, what does Jesus want? And how can I get with Jesus' agenda? Instead of trying to push my own agenda. In creation and the new creation, in life out there and in life in here, Jesus the Son is Lord. Out there and in here, we will always break ourselves if we try to resist that reality. In November, we'll celebrate our 50th anniversary as a church. And as we think about that, as we pray about that, let's pray that all of our talking and all of our planning for the future will be about what Jesus, our Lord, wants and how we can best serve Him rather than about what we want and how we can best serve ourselves. Verse 18 told us the church is the beachhead of the new creation. It's where the first signs of new creation are seen. But his new creation will have a wider reach than just the church. In the end, it will have the widest possible reach. Look at verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In verse 19, to say God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus the Son, that means God the Father does not work through many lords who each display something of God. The Father has chosen only one Lord who displays all the fullness of God. John Calvin puts it like this. It is the determination of God not to communicate himself or his gifts to us otherwise than by his Son. In other words, we cannot find God by piecing together a bit of divine light from this source over here and a bit of divine light from this other source over here. No, we find God in one place, 
We find him in Jesus the Son. It is only through Jesus that we receive God and his gifts. And verse 20 tells us, the great gift given through Jesus is reconciliation. Genesis 3 told us about the dislocation and the alienation that came from human rebellion. Our problems as human beings don't ultimately come from poor education. They don't ultimately come from deficient health care. They don't ultimately come from bad planning from our government. The ultimate source of our problems is the fact that we are alienated from God. We need to be reconciled to Him. And that can only happen through Jesus. The end of verse 20 tells us, He has made peace through His blood shed on the cross. The shedding of blood is a reference to violent death. How could Jesus' death make peace between us and God? Well, Jesus is in a unique position, utterly unique, because only Jesus stands on the side of the Creator as well as on the side of creation. Jesus is God the Son. He is fully with His Father. They are one in purpose and power and will. And Jesus is a man. He's with us too. He can offer a sacrifice on our behalf. But unlike any of us, he can offer a perfect, spotless sacrifice. Jesus stands on the side of the Creator as well as on the side of creation. And so only Jesus can reconcile God and humanity. And he did that on the cross. His sacrifice for us made peace. New creation comes through the reconciliation Jesus brought about on the cross. Today, as we've said, new creation can be seen in the church. It's incredible how lives are changed by Jesus today. But verse 20 says that is only the beginning. New creation will reach all things. All things on heaven and on earth. We read in Genesis chapter 3 how our attempt to be God didn't just break us, it broke the whole creation. The fruitful earth became the earth that resisted us. It's been resisting us ever since. We have to fight the earth to get our food from it. It takes painful toil by somebody for the human race to eat. We lose sight of that when we get our delivery from Tesco, but somebody somewhere has engaged in painful toil so we can have that food. Many of the human race barely do eat today in certain parts of the world. And the hints then of fruitfulness we see in this world, they're only hints. You and I have barely any idea what a truly fruitful earth will be like. The beauty we see in this world, and there's lots of it, 
But even the beauty we see is just the barest hint of the beauty that will be in a world set free finally from its bondage to decay. If we belong to Jesus, we will see and experience that perfect beauty and that perfect fruitfulness. What verse 20 is telling us is that Jesus, the Lord of the new creation, is still Lord of all creation. And He will restore not just the hearts and the bodies of His people, He will restore this earth too. And we will finally get to fulfill the role human beings were given at the first creation, to be stewards of God's creation. Our destiny is not to be magicked away to spend eternity in the clouds. According to the Bible, our destiny is life in a new, perfected creation. That's the destiny of all who trust in Jesus. It is a destiny paid for through His blood shed on the cross. How important is Jesus really? He is all important. Unlike so many people that we consider to be important, Jesus, though, doesn't hide himself from us. He doesn't hold himself aloof from us. He has not kept his distance from us, although he is all important. And he's not keeping his distance today. If you're a Christian, Jesus is the Lord who invites you to know him better. And if you're not yet a Christian, there's nothing bigger, there's nothing more important for you to consider than this. Don't waste your life trying to bend the universe to fit in with your plans. Come to Jesus. Ask him to forgive your rebellion and your sin. Ask him to reconcile you to his Father. Ask him to fulfill all his plans in your life. Ask him and he will do it. He's Lord of all. We're going to respond to this Lord we've been hearing about now by praising him. As we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus.
Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen.